Welcome to Politics and Psychology. I'm Dr. Renee Carr, and please introduce yourself in the chat or on social media. Today, we have with us former Virginia Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, and we will be discussing When Me Too is a Lie, The Need to Hate Lieutenant Governor Fairfax. And for this to not be a one-sided or a one-time conversation, please also give your thoughts or questions in the comments section below. So, Mr. Fairfax, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Carr. I'm honored to be on with you. Yes, thank you. Um, As I mentioned, you're the former Virginia Lieutenant Governor, having served from 2018 to 2022. Also, you previously served as an Assistant United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. And during your time as a federal prosecutor, you were also the deputy of the Major Crimes and Narcotics Unit and a member of the Human Trafficking Task Force. So I'm a big um, advocate against human trafficking, by the way. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And before that, you graduated from Duke University and the Columbia Law School, where you were also part of the prestigious Columbia Law Review. In politics, you worked for Tipper Gore, the um, the wife of Vice President Al Gore. During the 2000 presidential campaign, then a staffer for Senator John Edwards, and you also served on the staff of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee for two years. Then in 2018, you won the election to become lieutenant governor. Congratulations. Very proud of that. Thank you very much. (laughs) And this made you the only or only the second African-American to be elected to statewide office in Virginia with the first, of course, being Douglas Wilder in 1990, who was also elected as a lieutenant governor and then went on to become governor. Yes. Um, You were the Virginia lieutenant governor and the governor was Ralph Northam. Yes. So, Mr. Fairfax, as lieutenant governor, what were the goals that you had for that office? What made you decide to run? You know, um, doctor, what made me decide to run is is really rooted in my upbringing. Um, I have had so many extraordinary people in my life who gave me something that I like to call spiritual wealth. Uh, And what I mean by that was not money. We didn't have much of it. (laughs) But, but, you know, I was raised by two incredible parents. Uh, My parents got divorced when I was younger. Uh, but I love them both. And they both you know, played a very big part of my life. But but we were also raised by a village. I'm the youngest of four. Uh, my mother moved uh, all four of us in with my late maternal grandparents, two of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. Uh, Howard University graduates, a nurse and a postal worker for 45 years, uh, respectively. And uh, we had aunts, uncles, cousins, church, you know, oh, wow. whole bunch of folks, school who just embraced us, you know, at a very mm-hmm. tough and dark time in our lives. And um, we moved to Washington, D.C. in the mid-1980s, height of the uh, crack cocaine epidemic. We were the murder capital of the country. So you imagine, you know, moving sort of out of the frying pan and right into the fire. <laughs> and, right. and if you predicted how we would end up, it wouldn't be where we are. Um, with the help of all those, you know, amazing people, uh, you know, my mom uh, primarily, but my dad as well, you know, they put all four of their children through college and two of us through law school. You know, starting mm. from a very difficult place. Uh, my oldest yeah. brother's the de- dean of American Law School. I went to Harvard, undergrad Harvard Law School. Sister's labor and delivery nurse. I went to Maryland. Brother went to Syracuse, an engineer. And I was pulling up the rear. Uh, oh, as wow. Yeah. Uh, and so did a great job. They did. And, and so did our whole community. And so so that, that that's that's a, a long way of saying that's why I got involved in politics. And so when people give you that kind of spiritual wealth, um, and by that, I mean, you know, education, love, saying that you know, today may be dark, but then tomorrow can be brighter. And you have to believe that every single day of your life. 
Um, but they also taught us this, when you get that kind of spiritual wealth that transforms your life, you then have a spiritual debt that you must repay. It's not mm-hmm. just about you being successful and making money and being famous. Um, you got to go back yeah. and lift other people as you climb. And, and that's why I got involved in politics and public policy, more particularly at an early age, um, and eventually ran for office and was uh, fortunate enough to win. Mm-hmm. And you did a great job. And just from me looking at it, you know, from being in politics, you made significant starts in the criminal justice area, including helping to increase the police community relations. And like there was a n- numerous other successes. And you're also not only well-liked because, you know, you're a nice guy, nice smile, <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, help, you know, helped you to win, but, you know, it was not only Virginians who liked you, but it also across races. So black, yes. white, purple, and green, I thought that's a race, but you know, yes. <laughs> you know, it, you know, you went across races for people to really, sure. you know, like you and appreciate you. And it was also your impact that made you not only known throughout Virginia, but then also throughout the country. Um, yes, and in yes. your in your first year alone, if you look back, like your name had become like synonymous with political success and political positivity change, and right. it really influenced, you know, and caused you to skyrocket in the field of politics. Yes, so absolutely. I think I think you know that was kind of like the breeding ground, like your success, which may have appeared to be like this meteoric rise to you know to fame that kind of you know came back. So when we get into February 2019. This is when the governor was embroiled in a scandal over a back um, over a blackface photograph. Yes. So then you, because you had already had so much influence, you were like the obvious shoe in as his successor. And if that everything had have gone well, then you would have been the one to have ascended to governor in 2019 to replace that governor. And then after that, you would have been the obvious Democratic favorite for the nomination in 2021. And you had, again, support in Virginia, across the races and across the country, like wildfire supporting you. But then a few days later, the bottom falls out. So in your own words, what happened? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, it was really an extraordinary time uh, in many respects. Uh, We were coming off of, uh, like you said, an exceptional uh, first year in office. Uh, my proudest day um, as lieutenant governor was the day that I broke the ties to deliver health care for now 700,000 Virginians. Mm. Uh, and we expanded Medicaid. Uh, and it came down to tied votes in the Senate uh, of Virginia, where I'm the president, and I get to break those tie votes. Um, I tell people my, my favorite part about being lieutenant governor is every time I vote, I win. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what I like to say, too. <laughs> All we do is win. <laughs> All we do is win. Thank you, right. DJ Khaled. <laughs> right. And, uh, and as God did, my new favorite song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, he put us in a position to uh, to do that. And, and I just think about that every day. That there are 700,000 people, at least men, women, children of all races, ages, backgrounds, um, who are seeing a doctor, some of them for the first time, because mm-hmm. we stood in that well and, and delivered. Um, so, so just a powerful moment. I was a chair of the Democratic Lieutenant Governor's Association, as you mentioned. So I was uh, head of all the Democratic Lieutenant Governors. I flew around the country and helped a whole bunch of folks in in their elections, including a record number of diverse candidates, women, uh, African-American men and women. Uh, We have three in the Midwest 
uh, Mandela Barnes, Garland Gilchrist, mm -hmm. uh, Juliana Stratton, uh, as we mm -hmm. know, Mandela Barnes. Now yeah, no, Mandela, yeah. <laughs> all great people. Uh, I actually mm -hmm. went down to uh, Florida and Georgia for Stacey Abrams and uh, for our friend Andrew Gillum, uh, both of whom mm -hmm. I went down mm -hmm. in their, I went in their primaries, actually. And okay. I had a lot of people saying, just don't go down there. You know, you don't know the politics and, you you know, you might step on some toes and said, you know, look, <laughs> uh, you know, I, people elected me. They went out on a limb to support me and to believe right. in me. And, and it wasn't about me. And it goes right. back to that basic life equation of spiritual wealth and spiritual debt. And I believed in them. And they both won their respective nominations and, uh, you know, are just extraordinary people. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm hoping that Stacey uh, Abrams will be the next governor of Georgia. I believe she will. She's a, an amazing person. Mm -hmm. um, and Andrew Gillum, I want to give him... Um, a shout out. I, I love him very much. And I, I think he's a great he's person. He's a nice guy. Yeah, he is. And and, and it, it hurts my heart what he's going through. But I, I've, I've told him personally, God's going to see him through this um, right. and uh, his family as well. So, you know, uh, so anyway, so but that was, it was all around the country. It was in Hawaii, Nevada, everywhere else. So, so like you said, we're making you know really powerful, positive change with a positive message. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things mm -hmm. I'm also most proud of is I've never had to tear anyone down because I never would and I never will. That's right. That's just not who I am. And so, so that's what motivated me. And as you mentioned in February, 2019, um, everything that, you know, we'd ever worked for everything that we've ever uh, contributed to people uh, was put to the ultimate test in life. Mm -hmm. um, when I was falsely accused um, mm -hmm. of really heinous things that literally did not happen. Uh, they're not true. Uh, they were fabricated and they were targeted uh, specifically to achieve political ends. Um, and that's why here we are three and a half years later, uh, and, and nothing has come of them uh, because they weren't true, because they didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, and that's despite all of my efforts, uh, right, to get the truth, to have transparency and uh, and uh, very proud of, you know, what we've done to to show uh, that these things are not true. With the Washington Post uh, editorial board say that they can't think of another prominent man who's been accused uh, in this way, who has mm -hmm. gone to greater lengths uh, to clear their name. Uh, and we live in a society where you really shouldn't have to prove a negative. You shouldn't have to, uh, you know, do the extraordinary things we've done to clear your name, but I, I've done it again, not just to show my own innocence, um, which I'm hundred uh, percent certain of, but to really hopefully show a new way forward. Um, because these are some very um, important and deep and complex issues that our society is right. facing. And, and you've been uh, really extraordinary in terms of getting people to focus on this and, and really having a cultural and a very thoughtful reset. And that's right, all just a right. step back to reapproach this uh, entire issue in, in the right way. So, uh, you know, part of this conversation is, you know, when Me Too is a lie. So, yes, we want to be able to protect victims. If you're the real victims, yes, we also exactly. want to protect the victims who are being falsely accused. And because we have this society that perpetuates cancel culture or the right to just hang people. Uh, so if you have that, it makes it very easy right. to be the judge and jury in one tweet. And then right. you can completely devastate someone's family, their career, right. their future, and without any valid information and with no facts at all. Right. So right. I just want to go over really quick, just a timeline. So for the audience who is not familiar with the, this high profile case. So in November of 2017, Ralph Northam was elected as governor for Virginia and you, Justin Fairfax, were elected as lieutenant governor. Then in December of 2017, accuser one sends a letter to the Washington Post with her allegation. The Washington Post finds no evidence, so they don't print it. In that time, this accuser also has several radio and print interviews discussing sexual assault, 
and a book, but she never makes any mention of her own sexual assault, nor any mention of allegations against you, Mr. Fairfax. She also does not mention her allegations when she was a guest to discuss allegations against President Trump for sexual assault, nor does she ever mention any allegations in promoting her book and her syllabus for the Me Too. So all these times since November, she is mentioning this, you know, trying to get it published in the Washington Post, but never the other things as far as her allegations against you. Then in January 2018, both you and Northam are elected um, as governor and lieutenant governor, respectively. And then one year later, February the 1st, 2019, this is when the whole blackface scandal with Governor Northam starts. And this begins a national frenzy calling for the governor's resignation, but also a very widespread hope for you as lieutenant governor to then become the governor. Now, lo and behold, in that same week, this is when we have accuser one making her a public accusation against lieutenant governor Fairfax. Then we have accuser two who then enters the scene and also makes a public accusation against you, lieutenant governor Fairfax. However, it's interesting that before she makes her allegations, she's um, sure to delete all of her social media posts and her pictures before going public. So a few days later, I think it's around February the 8th, there's calls now for the resignation of Lieutenant Governor Fairfax. Those begin, and interestingly, the demands for the resignation of Governor Northam kind of like fade away and they're not as prominent anymore. So from the from the beginning of the first accusation, you have continued to declare that the allegations against you were false and demanding a criminal investigation to confirm the truth. However, you have had repeated requests and you even tried to do everything that you could to have the truth be known, but nothing was ever responded to as far as an investigation. And then in April of 2019, accuser one appears on CBS's Gail King. And then, interesting, in December of that year, she then decides to run for office. This is accuser number one. So also, accuser number two is never seen or heard from again for nearly two and a half years. I think it's like three years at this point. And no news channel is able to locate her for an interview or confirm that she's even working during this time. So throughout this whole time, again, you have continued to declare your innocence beginning from 2019 and you have done everything that you can. So what other things have you done to try to have the truth believed? Yes. Well, and I just want to reiterate that, uh, you know, it's very unfortunate, but these are fabricated accusations. And, yes, uh, definitely. Or folks, I, I just want to, and that's a, you know, a fancy word, you know, that lawyers use for made up. Uh, you know, and, and sadly, you can do this to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's one thing that I want people to fully appreciate um, is we, I think, need to get to a new golden age of observing the golden rule, um, because uh, anyone who has uh, either, you know, made these accusations, repeated them, uh, propagated them and, you know, used them as weapons, uh, right. whether for political purposes or personal pers- purposes, would not want this done to them. Uh, right. If if someone accused them uh, of something similar, they would not immediately say, I'm going to resign my job. I'm going to lose my career. I'm going to lose my family. And uh, it took Terry McAuliffe, the former governor, uh, who he and LeVar Stoney, the mayor of Richmond, who are directly connected to both of these accusers and both of these accusations and mm-hmm. really the smear campaign, 
Uh, Terry McAuliffe in three minutes after a press release called for my immediate resignation. I saw that. Yeah. Uh, and, and would he want that done to him or to his son or to someone in his family? I don't think he would. Um, right. And so people were very quick to discard uh, an African-American, right? No, no matter, you know, what you've achieved in your life, no matter right. how much you have tried to walk the right path, um, no matter. You're automatically fact, guilty. Automatically guilty. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I say, you know, Terry McAuliffe, LeVar Stoney, others, I mean, they dragged our country back 150 years in three minutes, mm-hmm. um, you know, because uh, they found that, you know, in their view, my life wasn't even worth examining whether it was true. Right. Um, it was this instant destruction. And here's the biggest thing is we're so blessed uh, to have the resources, the background, as you mentioned, the legal background as a federal prosecutor. Um, I knew not only that these things were 100% not true, but I knew how to deal with them as painful as it you know, has been over the last three and a half years. Um, but if they would do this to the sitting lieutenant governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, the second African-American ever elected in 400 years after Doug Wilder, as you mentioned, my political North Star and hero, they would do that to me. What would they do to a young African-American man in Norfolk or in Portsmouth mm-hmm. or in Lynchburg or in Arlington or Fairfax or Charlottesville or Accomack County? What, what would they do? They would do this and worse. And how would mm-hmm. that young man and his family fare? You know, I've had so many, uh, particularly so many African-American mothers come up to me and say, you know, my son was falsely accused. And I had one just the other day at church service afterwards. She said he's been in prison for 16 years. Oh, wow. And he just got out and... And he's having the hardest time adjusting. You know, he's angry at the world because no one believed him. And he spent 16 years of his life being falsely accused and in prison. And now what does he do with himself? And so uh, here's really the, the crucial thing that, that, that exists now. Um, when people are starting to realize that these things uh, are not true um, or likely are not true, I know they're not true, but in their own estimation, looking at the evidence that they're not true, with mm-hmm. Sophia Nelson, a brilliant uh, writer and journalist, uh, recently mm-hmm. wrote the Washington Post, uh, she regretted calling for resignation. When they found it's not true, they have the hardest time admitting it. That's um, right. It goes into such a deep psychological place. Uh, because where- they don't want to, yeah, like you mentioned, like with race matters. So, you know, I had mentioned before on the podcast about cognitive dissonance which means that you believe, you know, one thing and you can't go against your opposing belief. So in order for them to then have to admit that they were wrong, they would have to admit the reason why they so easily believed it was because of race, but in an attempt to not have to seem as if they're racist, to not have to seem as if they have any prejudice or um, stereotype thinking, then it's like, okay, well, I can't admit that because then it also means that there is something in me that might be a little bit racist or have racist foundations. So right, I just that, wanted to add that. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. And your professional perspective on that is so important here. And I, I think it's it's that. And then there are other facets of this too, because you obviously had a lot of African-Americans that immediately believed it and called for mm-hmm. a resignation. Uh, we had the Legislative Black Caucus in Virginia that called for a resignation right away mm-hmm. uh, after mm-hmm. press release, right? Um, it was Senator Tim Kaine, you know, in Virginia, you know, I had a tweet and said that, uh, you know, these allegations detail atrocious crimes <laughs> by the Lieutenant Governor. Atrocious mm-hmm. crimes. I mean, right. I you know we hadn't even talked about um, these particular things and why I knew they were not true and right. you know, how we go through that. So, but again, there were others in Congress. There were people at the state level, local level, and and here's the issue: when you rush to judgment in these types of situations, and we've seen this now, whether it's Duke Lacrosse, UVA, Brian Banks, Exonerated Five. I mean, there's such a litany mm-hmm. uh, of these types of cases. 
when the dust finally settles, you sometimes find yourself way on the wrong side of history. Um, and that's one of the dangers of rushing to judgment. Um, th- th- there are actually even greater dangers, right? Because in our past history, sometimes when people would rush to judgment, the person wouldn't even be alive to talk about it. That's right. And so I feel very blessed in that respect um, that I do get to talk about it. And that's why I also think it's an incredible opportunity for our nation. I think it's a seminal moment uh, in Virginia and in American history, mm-hmm. because we can finally talk about this and say, well, how do you deal with something when it's not true? How do you deal with the destruction that's been wrought? Uh, not just, again, for me personally, for uh, our family. Uh, my wife uh, is a dentist, has her own practice, is extraordinary. Um, by the way, doctor, she, you know, uh, I'm biased, but I think she's the best dentist in the world. And, uh, <laughs> and okay. so, uh, so, so please go see well, her. Yeah, your whole family, they do, you all do have beautiful teeth. So I can uh, <laughs> give, her, give her kudos for that. <laughs> and she, and she sees about all of us. So she, she, yeah. she's very strict with HIPAA. So I don't even know sometimes when my family goes, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and so thank you for that. But, mm-hmm. you know, our two young children, um, you know, we have a 12 year old son and 11 year old daughter and, you know, we have these extraordinary, you know, people in our family and the damage that people have done just by, first of all, fabricating these accusations, timing them precisely right. um, to inflict maximum political damage, immediately uh, putting them, you know, at a, you know, the highest decibel level in the media, you know, on mm-hmm. CBS with Gail King, these interviews, totally no investigation of substance that would have revealed uh, why they weren't true. Uh, and then later, two and a half years later, New York Public Radio uh, putting these on as well, uh, including, um, you know, uh, the second accuser, you mentioned Meredith Watson, they put on her audio, she wasn't even on, she hadn't spoken in two and a half years. She's not made a public statement in three and a half years. And yet her attorney, Nancy Erica Smith, you know, continues to put out these very vile, you know, bombastic statements, just trying to destroy me. I mean, uh, Nancy Erica Smith was comparing me, literally, she called me a rapist. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how many times compared me to R. Kelly and Bill Cosby and Oh, wow. Um, oh, yeah. I just, you know, and my, my family seeing this. And, 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 I and think, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. And I was going to say, and in three and a half years, they want no investigation. They have right. actively avoided, fought against an investigation for three and a half years. And I, as the one who was falsely accused, have done everything I can do. Uh, you know, I've taken two lie detector tests voluntarily. I've begged two prosecutors, both very accomplished African-American women, uh, in Durham, Satana DeBerry, and in Boston, Rachel Rollins, who's now the U.S. Attorney uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, you know, beg the FBI, as you know, I've met with the FBI mm-hmm. myself personally for three hours with no attorney present, uh, mm-hmm. which I've had a lot of my attorney friends say, Justin, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? and, and my non-attorney yeah. friends. But, you know, well, what I told them was I said, look, I first of all, I know I'm 100% innocent. That's number right. one. Right. Um, and number two, we've got to get to the truth. Um, I, as a former federal prosecutor, I, I know what it means to have an investigation mm-hmm. to it, to have unbiased people examining these things. And I mean, this is a as clear a case as you can find um, mm-hmm. of the evisceration of due process and also of fabricated accusations that people just don't want to admit it. Right, uh, and you mentioned right. some of the reasons why. So it cuts across all of these lines and um, and people are dealing with their own pain, their own trauma, um, which this that's is also right. raised. And, and and that's something I hope that we can get everybody to heal from because this is so much bigger than me and uh, Virginia and Lieutenant Governorship and the governorship. And, you know, you know, these offices, you know, are important for a lot of reasons, but our humanity is way more important. Um, and that's what's missing from our politics. There's so much cruelty right now. 
um, where people don't care what happens to other people. They don't care if you're falsely accused. Um, And 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 that's got to change. And I think that, you know, we had mentioned, you know, the need to hate Lieutenant Governor um, Fairfax and, you know, with the need to hate, it's often because, you know, people are hurting emotionally or they're empty and they may be looking for a tweet to go viral to give them significance or to give them income and fame, or you can have a platform and then you don't really care really about legislation or about truth. You just care more about popularity and bringing more attention back to yourself. And I think it just really reflects that our society has grown from really trying to make a difference in careers to now just becoming famous. And at any cost, even if that means we have to bring someone down, who you, by the way, have had a stellar career, you know, a blemish-free background personally and professionally, and for people to be so willing and so eager to have like this vitriol or this hate against you was not really a reflection about you. It was more a reflection of their own insecurities and their own desperation to get whatever their political gains were, what they wanted to have as far as their political process. You know, it wasn't even really about you. You were just a victim in all of this. And I also really feel bad for the accusers because now, you know, they do have their own backgrounds of sexual trauma. Think about not only were you, Mr. Fairfax, exploited in this situation for someone else's political gain, but you now have two women who are also being exploited for someone else's political gain. And they're not really caring about what they went through, how they are abusing or exploiting their personal experiences to then have them be triggered to be like, yeah, maybe that did happen or I can be used for this. And, you know, they're not really considering the whole or the holistic implications of you're trying to get this one office or you're trying to defame someone and you're willing to do that at the cost of at least three people and not just a little bit, but significantly. And so that's that's really unfortunate. It it really is. And I'm so glad that you raised that because it really is sad. Um, It's tragic Mm -hmm. in that respect. I mean, they, as I mentioned, the, these very high profile multi-million dollar attorneys, Nancy Erica Smith and Deborah Katz, uh, you know, represented uh, these two, uh, sadly, in this case, false accusers. Um, mm-hmm. They've essentially silenced these two black women. Right. Uh, they weren't Ross even was, appearing, even on the interviews. It was the attorneys appearing. Right. They, and they most did of the them. Right. They did the exactly. They did the ones with Gail King and CBS, but um, they haven't been on television since. Uh, mm-hmm. And and in fact, Meredith Watson has not been heard from publicly in over three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Not a single public statement appearance. Um, anything. It's just all been Nancy Erica Smith. I mean, almost as if, you know, she's using her like a ventriloquist, you know, right. and sort of like the, this own game. like a political football, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, as we've gotten further and further into the investigative process, as you mentioned, the FBI has been talking to various people. I talked with them, sat with them for three hours. Um, it's very telling uh, to our knowledge, the accusers have not sat with the FBI. Their lawyers that have not sat with the FBI, Terry McAuliffe, LeVar Stoney, you know, SKDK, uh, Kessler PR, none of these people who, um, you know, were the most vociferous who put this right. all the way on international television and radio, right, right. they won't talk to the FBI. And it was fascinating because uh, one of the attorneys, Nancy Edgar Smith, got angry, got upset that the FBI was looking into this at all. <laughs> I mean, and, mm. and as Lauren Burke, my amazing comms director pointed out, if you or uh, your client is the victim of a crime, why would you be angry at the FBI? That's right. Wouldn't you be excited, right? Wouldn't you finally want to get justice? Um, But they have avoided, specifically avoided investigation for almost three and a half to four years. 
and and, and that there's a reason for that. The reason is it's not true. And, mm-hmm. and that's why we're now on at this moment in history's intersection in history. Um, I believe this is going to go down as one of the greatest scandals with regard to race and politics in the history of Virginia and of America. Oh, um, definitely. Not only did it, as you mentioned, you know, do what it was intended to do at the, at the moment, block me from becoming governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia and likely serving seven consecutive years ever uh, would have happened in the history of Virginia because we have the mm-hmm. sort of one done rule for, for governors. Yeah, you serve your four years <laughs> and then you're done. Um, you can come back later, but you can't do it consecutively. And so um, not only that, not only you know the impact, again, on my legal career, I was a partner at an inter- international law firm. I uh, mm-hmm. ended up, you know, essentially having to leave there, uh, you know, with no real option, um, you know, and so my entire legal career, my wife, my children, you know, my ability to earn money for them uh, for three right. and a half years, right? right? All based on things that were fabricated. And, so and how did you, things, yeah, how did you feel? Yeah. How did you feel knowing that you were being falsely accused? I guess what comes to mind is uh, Joseph, um, like in the Bible. So you're being falsely accused. You have all of these right. years right. of being in the dungeon and no one's believing you. They don't even care. They just throwing you away <laughs> and the accuser is off living their best life. And like, like how, how did you, you know, psychologically navigate accusations that were not just, you know, just between you and the community. It was like you and the world knew about this accusation (laughs) and you're, you know, you're a high profile person, a high profile case. You had high profile employment places in addition to being Lieutenant governor. Like how did you navigate emotionally having these losses as a result of two lies? Yeah. You know, it's it was incredibly trying uh, and incredibly difficult. Uh, and just being very candid, I mean, it was there are some very very dark moments um, in that span because, as you mentioned, you know, I went from being someone who was a you know, former federal prosecutor who you know kept our community safe. I did violent crimes and uh, to include uh, issues sometimes around uh, domestic violence and sexual assault and, and that you know, related. Uh, things. I was the deputy of the uh, Northern Virginia Human Trafficking Task Force. So I really got to, you know, see up close and personal, um, you know, that community of care that was wrapping their arms around, you know, people who had survived really horrific things, including, you know, very young people um, and and adults as well, and men and women, boys and girls. And so I never thought in a million years, um, and certainly not at the you know height of you know what at that point was my uh, you know uh, political uh, journey um, that someone would come out of the blue with unsubstantiated ap- accusations, sort of like a kamikaze, <laughs> you know, right, and, right. and 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 try to destroy everything that we had worked for, you know, for not just this generation but for every generation. Um, right. I told people, you know, you know the story very well about how I got the last name Fairfax, which is just like Fairfax County, the largest jurisdiction <laughs> in Virginia. People thought I've made it up just to run for office. <laughs> and, I, and I've convinced them I'm not that smart uh, <laughs> or clever. And uh, But we got it because my ancestor, my great, great, great grandfather, Simon Fairfax, was freed from slavery 60 years before the Civil War in 1798 by the ninth Lord Fairfax. And that's how I got that last name. And I found that mm-hmm. out 20 minutes before I took the oath of office as lieutenant governor in this oh, really wow. amazing and spectacular Very moving. Play. My father in the basement of the Capitol in Richmond uh, told me uh, for the first time, handed me a piece of paper, a copy of the deed of manumission. And I said, son, this is how you got your last name. And right. I walked upstairs and took the oath of office with that document in my breast yeah. pocket. Yeah. And so 
literally one of the ironies here is that at the very moment I'm finding that out, how my family got this last name, there were people who were plotting to destroy it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what I have said is that part of the reason that I have fought this for so long and, and we'll fight it as long as I have to until the truth is fully out. And uh, not only am I vindicated and, but that we start to heal as a country and we stop people from doing this to anybody else. That's part of my mission to get cruelty out of our politics, but also to deal with this very serious issue, which impacts all of us, particularly African-Americans. I mean, the history there is so cruel um, and so vicious. Um, but, but I tell people, my last name does not belong to me. Um, it belongs to two classes of people. Uh, it's first the generation that came before me, uh, everyone who poured their blood, sweat, and tears, who sacrificed so much throughout the generations, um, not just my parents and their parents and my, you know, their grandparents, but their grandparents and their grandparents, right? The journey that all of our families are collectively on, it belongs to them. And they handed me that name in trust and I had to give it to the next generation better off than I found it, but it belongs to a second class. And that is to my children and to everyone who comes after them. Um, and so the name doesn't belong to me. And so I said that when you do something like this to fabricate accusations, to go on a political smear campaign for years, to not mm-hmm. want it investigated, to call me and put horrific names, put these things in print and in media on TV to live forever indelibly. I said, I had no choice uh, but to fight till the very end because uh, this name belongs to the next generation. And, I, and I've told people very candidly, um, I will be put in my grave before uh, my son and my daughter had their dad be a rapist or even an accused rapist. Right, uh, right. And, and that is that, that all you have in this life is your word and your integrity um, and your name. And your name, yeah. And that's it. And so and so that's why this has been so personal for me. It's why it's I have uh, you know made it clear that I was going to do this. And again, some people said, including my lawyer friends, Justin, why, why don't you just let it go? You know, it kind of died down and. Uh, you, you know, you didn't, you know, there was no issue once it, you know, the initial thing blew up, but for some people it's politics. For me, it's not, it's personal. Yeah. Um, and, and it's personal for all of us, because guess what, for the people who have done this, they wouldn't want it done to them. Uh, Deborah Katz and Nancy Smith would not want somebody to accuse them of something heinous like this and then just have it hang over their heads forever. They would, they wouldn't tolerate it. I guarantee you they would sue people. I guarantee you they would want an oh, investigation. Oh, definitely defamation of character for sure. Absolutely. And if it happened to their children, whereas, you know, when we sued, why is he doing that? And he's bullying people and he's, you know, trying to silence people. Well, again, they've silenced these two African-American women and have done such harm to them. And just with no thought, no right. worry or care about their futures, about what their careers now look like, what their, you know, family lives look like. I don't know. And I, and I wish the best for them. And that seems weird to say, um, but at the end of the day, we're human. Um, um, we have so much that is difficult in our world, so much darkness. Um, there's so many efforts to destroy people, to utterly destroy them. Uh, you mentioned cancel culture and these other things. Um, no one would want these things done to them. And that right. gets back to the golden rule. Um, it, even those making these accusations, uh, I guarantee you um, that if someone accused them of something, they wouldn't immediately want people to believe them, to, to not right. have due process, to not have evidence and to destroy their careers. So why would you do it to me? Why would you do it to my family? Why would you do it to anyone? Um, I think that just goes back to the psychology of hate. Like it doesn't really mean anything. You and the other two accusers were just victims collectively in someone else's political agenda. 
And right. I think that people can be so cruel because they're so selfish. They don't care right. about the others and they can hide behind a tweet or they can hide behind right. wealth or political right. connections. And then also hoping that you would have forgotten about it and moved on and they could have just done their dirt, you know, and <laughs> kept going. And right. so I, you know, I do applaud you for continuing and resisting, you know, just allowing the cruelty and politics to continue, at least not against your name. And I think that it's something for us to all consider is that whether you're gossiping, whether you're liking or retweeting a very negative or hateful, cruel tweet, then right. think about what's motivating you to do that. Like you're right. being part of perpetuating cruelty, a part of perpetuating hate, rather than being a part of like love and bringing people together. And, right. you know, the thing about when you have hate, hate is something that never just kind of like goes away once you do something. So, you right. know, you're a prosecutor, like you can go and kill someone. So if I were called in as the witness, you're the prosecutor, I'm the, you know, the witness, you know, for the expert part right. of it, right. you know, my, you know, testimony would be, or my contribution as the expert would be that you're angering. So you kill the person and you're thinking, okay, well, now that I kill them, it's over with but they still have the anger toward that person. <laughs> and so even, even right. when it goes, or they still have right. the hate. So even when it goes to the level of murder, hating someone is never going to go away. It's an all consuming internal right. experience. It comes against you yourself. And it doesn't really do anything to the other person. It just consumes you and your continued actions against them is what hurts them. But you still have that aching, you know, horrible feeling of hate that's inside of you. But that hate is resulting from another deeper psychological experience, probably of rejection, of insecurity, right. of not knowing what your future is and feeling hopeless or feeling like you don't measure up. And so you're jealous of other people. You don't like, for example, Lieutenant Governor Fairfax being catapulted to these high heights of success. Like, well, how did he do that? And I'm just as good as he is. So then, you know, you may have jealousy, right. but, you know, the whole thing of cruelty is because people have become so callous and so self-centered that they don't care about hurting anyone else as long as they can achieve their own directives, not realizing that when you operate from that approach, you're never going to really have an abundant sense of happiness or joy because it's something deeper than that, that you're operating from. Right. So I just wanted to just add that in there real quick. No, I appreciate that so much. And you have on so many uh, phenomenal points there. Uh, and one is you mentioned that, that hatred doesn't go away for the person who commits the murder, but it also um, doesn't go away or those feelings that damage doesn't go away, that collateral damage for everybody else was impacted. And I remember this from when we do these trials, uh, you may have murdered that person, but you in some ways also murdered their family. Some ways That's you also right. yeah. at least murdered, you know, their presence in the community. And, and, you know, I'm I'm actually uh, experiencing something like this now. I'm, I'm representing uh, Donovan Lynch's family uh, here in Virginia mm -hmm. Beach. Wayne Lynch, extraordinary man. Okay. Donovan was killed in March of 2021 by a Virginia Beach Police Department uh, by an officer who gave no warning, had no body camera on, shot him within seconds of seeing him. Oh wow! And and and, and let him lay uh, there out, you know, on the scene for an inhumane amount of time. And, and this is uh, Donovan happened to be uh, the cousin of Pharrell, uh, oh. the extraordinary superstar um, yeah. who really, of course, done Happy as a great song. And yeah. so and so much more than that. But my kids love Happy. And so <laughs> yeah. um, and, and and so but left him lying dead in the street for nine hours. And so you talk about cruelty, you talk about the ultimate penalty, you talk about callousness. 
Um, and and what people don't understand is, and I, we're dealing now not only with the legal case and there's a wrongful death suit right now against the city and the officer, but I'm, you know, in some ways, doctor, I'm not qualified like you in this way um, professionally, but we're dealing with pain and heartache and exactly. um, I've been hugging exactly. people and crying and a father in a community that's devastated, you know, emotionally devastated. And I don't know that you can ever fully recover from it. You can certainly heal, but like with any, you know, wounds of that nature, um, there's always going to be a scab there. And, and, and sadly in this case, um, you know, you talk about peeling the scabs off for people. I mean, to fabricate things like this, because like you said, you, you needed to stop Justin Fairfax from becoming governor. That was so important to who all the people involved in this, um, that they would go to any lengths, right? Right. Um, including doing things that have gotten black men and women literally killed in this country. Um, so let, let's, I know we often yeah. you know, act like this is politics That's and true. these are quote, hashtag me too accusations. These are things that have been life and death for people. Um, including the rush to judgment. Um, and even still today, uh, right? As I mentioned, we have people who are sitting in prison right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what's fascinating about that is those are people who actually, in theory, not you know, not all got it, but they got some form of due process, right? They got a, an indictment, a trial, a, you know, a, a, an ability to, to bring witnesses to testify. They've given none of that to me. That's why Lauren Burke, my comms director, came up with this uh, uh, idea of press lynching, mm-hmm. right? It, it's, we're going to, put your name next to these horrific words, rape, sexual assault, right? right? And you will have no opportunity to do anything about it, right? It'll be in print. It'll be on CBS with Gail King. It will be on New York Public Radio with Melissa Harris-Perry and too bad for you Mm -hmm. and too bad for your kids when they Google you 30 years from now. That's right. And so that's what's so really just, just really despicable about this entire thing. And it also is ripping the wounds off for, so many tens of millions of people, uh, you know, mostly women, but also men who this has happened to, right, right? Throughout the course of their lives. And um, yeah, the story very briefly at a, an elderly African-American woman at church came up to me one day in 2019, right after this had happened, seeing the interviews on CBS with Gail King and, um, you know, suggesting, you know, please tell me you didn't do this. I think you're such a wonderful young man. And I never would think you would you know, do something like this. And I said, ma'am, I, I promise I didn't do it. And I haven't had a chance yet to even get, you know, my side of the story out or to get the evidence out that I'm innocent, but I promise I didn't do it. And she looked right. at me and she smiled, but through tears, she said, Jess, I'm so glad you told me that. And, um, because I was raped mm. and, and I, and I just, it, it, it just was devastating. That was one of the most devastating moments I've ever lived through. Yeah. Um, because I said, you know, for people to care so much about politics now, destroying someone else for political purposes that they would rip the scabs off, not for just me and people in my family, including many who survived this, um, but for, you know, an 80 year old African-American woman in a church, right, to make her collateral damage just right. because she wanted to be governor. I, you know, there's no political office in the world uh, that is worth doing that to someone's humanity. Um, and I tell people there's something more important than politics. I love politics for what it can do for people. I've never loved actual politics. I, I love the ability to change people's lives in a positive way. I love public mm-hmm. policy, which mm-hmm. was my major dupe. But, um, you know, politics, there's some, some things way more important than that. Integrity, you know, honesty, lifting people up rather than trying to destroy them. And we're in this culture now where people are lying in wait. They're just waiting for the right moment, right? And That's very you can, true. You can almost time it. 
doctor, you know, when someone's about to, you know, achieve success or, you know, what, no matter what it is, you know, if it's NBA draft night or the Olympics or becoming CEO at a bank or getting admitted to college or, you know, becoming head of the, you know, cheerleading squad or the football team, mm-hmm. you know, sadly we're in this culture where there's somebody just waiting. Yeah. I'm waiting for you to get to that moment and I'm going to blow you up. I can't wait. You know, right. that's the ethos that exists now. And I think it comes from the place that, that you talked about, you know, rather than being honest, I mean, if someone really had something they wanted to talk to you about, um, and that's been fascinating in this entire, uh, you know, situation as well. Um, I, you know, I've never had a conversation, you know, with either of, uh, you know, the, the two people making the accusations here, right. About any of it. I mean, they, you know, like they talked to CBS mm. and oh, okay. New York public radio and lawyers and PR firms, but never right. To, because that wasn't the point. The point was right. not to get a, common set of facts to get a common agreement on, you know, what didn't, you know, what is and wasn't true. No, the point is to destroy, mm-hmm. right? And, and, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter if it's false, right? Or fabricated, it's to destroy. That was the goal. And that was the goal of all the political actors and lawyers and, you know, Deborah Katz, Nancy Edgar Smith and all the others around them. It was to destroy. And, and what's, what's amazing is again, they would not want this done to them. Not a single person. I've asked anybody. No one can answer that question for me. If right. someone did this to you, accused you of something, and the answer I most commonly get from people is, well, no one has ever accused me. Okay, well, that doesn't mean they can't. <laughs> you can't mm-hmm. stop somebody That's from, true. from making something up about you, right? Everybody is vulnerable uh, to that. Um, but but let's say that they did. Would you want to be treated in that way? Would you want a tweet to come out and then Terry McCullough for a press release and three minutes later, Terry McCullough said, you need to lose your job <laughs> at the bank, right? right. <laughs> you can no longer be a psychologist. You, right. you can't be a you know, baseball You can't work player. at 7-Eleven. You can't yeah. work at 7-Eleven. It's over for you, right? Terry yeah. McCullough has tweeted and it's been three minutes and he's convinced these are serious and credible <laughs> based on mm-hmm. nothing. Whereas he would, you know, he's defended others, right? Who are his friends and politically connected. But, you know, as an African-American, again, even one as Lieutenant Governor, what they were proving in that moment um, and it taps into a 400 year history in our country was that me and my black life didn't matter to them. Mm-hmm. It just didn't, it just didn't matter. Right. Right. My, my, my family, or the didn't lives matter. of the accusers either. Didn't exactly. And that's what now people are seeing with the a benefit of time. And, and cause you got to see these, you know, things over time horizon. When it first happens, you know, people rush, you must believe you must lock, stock and barrel, believe all of it. And then as things start to not add up and then eventually fall apart and then eventually be revealed to be fabricated and not true, right, which is where we are three and a half years later, um, you know, people don't know what to do, doctor. And this is where I think your expertise and your focus comes in. You talk about the cognitive dissonance. I mean, we're in a place where there are some people who just cannot admit that this is not true. Like they have to believe Mm-hmm. Right, that, that, that this happened, or if this didn't happen, I've heard this. Well, well, something must have happened, or, or the right. guy just, he must be a bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, he must have kicked. The they wouldn't have said it for no reason. They right, right, right. They would just the, make yeah. this up. Right, and and, yeah. and I, a good buddy of mine who's a pastor also, you know, he said, you know, everybody hates you when you're the Central Park Five, but they love you at the movie premiere when you're the Exonerated Five. Right, right. And the problem That's is that yeah. that interstitial space between those two. And this to me is why due process and not rushing to judgment is so critically important, aside from the reasons that we talked about. Again, people have been killed behind this. People have spent, you know, lost years and decades in prison behind this rush to judgment. Um, but due process and, and investigations and, and also just looking at a situation and asking, you know, does this even make sense, right? The timing of it, the manner of it, the fact that, you know, those making the accusations don't want it investigated. And by the way, we've now had on the other side, 
so many law firms involved, so many lawyers involved. I mean, I, I believe millions of dollars have been spent by, mm-hmm. you know, on lawyers to not look into accusations. Right. I mean, it, it literally makes no sense, right? right. It's like, you know, filing a criminal complaint would have been free. <laughs> and yeah, we're going right. to spend millions on PR firms and lawyers to not look into it, right? We <laughs> don't want anybody, we're making these accusations and we're saying it happened, but please buy all means don't right. look don't, into it. Yeah, don't look into it. Yeah. Right. I just, it's, out, it's outrageous. <laughs> just, and, just believe what we say. Don't look. Just believe. That's what right. Don't saying. look. Please no, don't pay no attention <laughs> to the man behind the curtain. You know, pulling the strings. Right. So, you know, and so it, it's unfortunate. And and uh, you know, I find some gallows humor in it because you have to have have to have gone through this, but but it also is, you know, very serious in this respect. It, it does hurt people, you know, mm-hmm. and there and there are there are women, particularly African-American women, and this was a very cynical. Um, twisting of uh, the situation that happened, you know, they would come out and say, well, African-American women, you know, we must believe them because they're not believed. And too often, you know, they're just never believed. And, and so now Justin Fairfax, we're going to take, you know, hundreds of years of, of, of not believing black women and put on the back of Justin Fairfax with no, mm-hmm. you know, information evident. We don't care whether it's true or not. He's going to pay for the sins of everybody else. Right. right. Um, even if he's innocent, we really don't care because it's, it's time. And I think that's cruel in and of itself and not, you know, and so then to cruelly do this to someone, as you mentioned, who not only is a you know father, a husband, a son, a, you know, a brother, uh, you know, was a federal prosecutor, a human trafficking task force, um, you know, co-head to, to try to stop this. And it shows again, that 400 year, absolutely seemingly for some people, irresistible impulse to not only destroy black people on site, Right. But it's sort of the snap of the finger. Um, mm-hmm. I have some of these same people, you know, who uh, were going after us. Right. They and they didn't like Brett Kavanaugh either. Right. They went after him. Right. But they still true. insist. But they still insist that he get due process. You know, uh, we had we had Nancy Erica Smith saying to you know Brett Kavanaugh, well, why don't you want an FBI investigation? Why won't you take a lie detector test? Deborah Katz the same. You know, why don't you want this investigated? And then literally months later, when it came to me, the African-American lieutenant governor of Virginia, they did a complete 180. They wanted no lie detector test. They wanted no FBI involvement. They wanted no investigation. Because again, that was a massive fault line, right? Because my Black life didn't matter to them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? It just didn't matter. Even Brett Kavanaugh, who they are diametrically opposed to, right? his life and rights mattered enough. Even though they didn't want him on the court, they knew they had to give him some process to stop that from happening. With me, all they had to do was send a press release. The press lynching was on and it was over in their minds. And I don't want this to ever happen again in so Virginia and America. I agree. Not not anywhere. Um, but what can we do to support real victims of sexual assault? You know, what we can do, first of all, is to listen, right, um, thoughtfully, um, you know, hear people out um, and also make sure and encourage them to get justice. Right. Um, again, I was a federal prosecutor. We had many people come to our office. Um, to make claims, um, you know, many of which, uh, you know, were supported by evidence, corroborating evidence, some of which actually turned out not to be true. Um, And as a prosecutor, uh, you know, that was very important for me. It wasn't just about putting people in prison, right? Mm -hmm. Our goal was to do justice. Um, And that meant if you found evidence that someone did not commit a crime, if you found evidence that exonerated them, um, you needed to put that forward. Right. Right. Because you don't want innocent people suffering and in jail and their families and communities. Um, You know, if you don't put that forward and we've seen this in this case, we've seen so many violations of so many the purported constitutional rights. 
Um, if you don't put that forward, it's called a Brady violation, which is one of the worst things you can do as a prosecutor. Um, it can literally get you disbarred, if not put into jail, as it did to Mike Nifong, who was the DA in the Duke Lacrosse case, right? The false uh, rape accusations in Duke Lacrosse. He was withholding evidence um, that these guys actually didn't do it, right? There was evidence that said, well, you know what? These guys look like they're, they might be innocent, but he would withhold it because, oh, that'll hurt my case. I can't vilify them anymore if the public knows about this stuff, right? And so that is, that is just so vicious and immoral. And that's why the courts take it so seriously. And in this case, you have the attorneys, Nancy Erica Smith and Deborah Katz. Uh, you know, we have exculpatory information. They just won't acknowledge it. They just say, we don't want to talk about it. Or we're not, we're going to not address that with the press. We're going to be quiet about that. Right. Um, including a literal exonerating eyewitness in, in the Duke accusation with Nancy Erica Smith and Meredith Watson. We're just not talking about it for years because what it does is it shows, oh, Justin Fairfax, oh, he looks like he's innocent now, but then we can't continue mm-hmm. to call him a rapist. And then right. we can't continue to call him a predator. And then we have to go back over three and a half years both the media uh, and those in the you know Twitter and the Facebook mobs and in politics, the politicians who called for my resignation mm-hmm. didn't care. They got to go back and now they got to look in the mirror. Right. And, and they got to, right, right. And, and my goal uh, for them is, you know, this is not about to me gloating. It's not about, it, we got to fix our country. We got to fix this culture. We got to stop this. And, I, and I'm, I'm grateful. I thank God that I survived this. I thank God that my family survived this. I thank God that my community, my friends survived this. I mean, this is, this is one of the worst things you could ever do to somebody, to fabricate these kinds of claims and then try to destroy somebody with no investigation, no due process, no evidence, no nothing. You just want them gone and you don't care about it. Because again, this happens every single day in America and there are so people then, who come back from this. Mm-hmm. So then with that, how can we support you and other victims of false accusations such as this? You know, I think one of the things we can do is just tell the truth. Um, there are some powerful truth tellers, uh, like yourself. Uh, also I have to give credit to some amazing journalists who have told the truth. Uh, Roland Martin, uh, mm-hmm. Sophia Nelson, uh, wrote in the Washington post who reversed course, by the way, uh, for about three yes, years. That was very courageous of her. Very courageous. And I, I applaud her for her integrity, her courage, um, her truth telling. Uh, and again, you know, I've, it's been fascinating. I've had a ton of politicians and even media folks apologize to me in private. <laughs> you know, in, Justin, I'm so sorry, man. I got it wrong. I'm sorry about <laughs> to the family. Sorry you had to leave your law firm and for three, three and a half years, just had to figure it out on your own and your career got devastated. I'm so sorry about that, man. I say, look, thank you. As my eighth grade teacher would say, that and 85 cent will get you on the bus, right? <laughs> and that shows you how long ago that was, right? But, but, uh, but you know, and I, I do appreciate that. I don't want to, um, I don't want to play that down too much because I appreciate people doing that. But but the courage it takes to then apologize in public. Yeah. And, and it's not just to me, right? I think that's important is to, you know, my family, to my kids, to our, my mom, to everybody who's gone through this. My family has lived this nightmare for three and a half years. Um, and it's, again, it's put in print, but the media has got to also become accountable for what they do and what they say and what they write. And it's amazing that we have this rush to judgment and this rush to amplify these claims without any corroborating evidence. And actually evidence showing that they weren't true and suspiciously, suspiciously timed. Um, and yet when they start to fall apart and look to not be true, radio silence. Right, crickets. Radio silence. And as Dr. King said, you know, there comes a moment in time where silence becomes betrayal. Um, and I think we're at that moment um, because, and it's not, by the way, a betrayal of me at all. It's really a betrayal of the truth. 
It's mm -hmm. a betrayal of the integrity of the people who have made these accusations or who went along with them, right? Um, and it's a betrayal of who we can be as a nation. I mean, you had, I had journalists, you know, knocking down our door, you know, calling me, calling Lauren Burke, um, you know, staking out, you know, my kids, we had to make security arrangements for them. Oh, um, wow. But people also don't know, I, I got death threats because of this. Oh, wow. um, I've had to shield our children from so much and the amount of cruelty that went into this, they don't care. And that's why I think um, this is such a seminal moment in American history. We finally have a chance to confront this head on and to get it right. Um, and yet some journalists who are way more responsible than others, you have some who you know, doubled and tripled down. Well, okay, fine. These might not be true, but we're going to get you on some, we're going to keep attacking you mm -hmm. because this is, and this is politics. You signed up for this and politics mm -hmm. ain't being bad. Well, that's, that's part of the problem is that attitude that, oh, politics is rough. And therefore you just have to deal with whatever happens. This actually transcends party. Um, it's transcendental. Oh, definitely. Yes. Definitely. You know, this is about our fundamental humanity. And who we are as a culture. And again, none of them would want this done to them. Uh, Deborah Cass, Nancy Smith wouldn't want it done to them, their children, their grandchildren. Um, I guarantee you, uh, their lawyers, just like me, if their you know children were accused, they and let's say they were in college, they they wouldn't immediately say, "Are you drop out of college today?" Because someone went on Twitter <laughs> and said you did something that you're telling me you didn't. Do. No, right. they would defend them, right? They would say, right. "Well, I need to figure right. this out, right?" And so, just let's stop this cruelty and this idea that. Um, again, they continue to you know make these vile statements. As I mentioned, Nancy Smith was you know essentially calling me R. Kelly, calling me a rapist, calling me Bill Cosby, and, and yeah. I'm like, what signal does that send again to the young man or the young woman, you know, in in Norfolk and Portsmouth and Charlottesville and Arlington and Alexandria who's studying right now, right? You know, saying you know what I want to be a lawyer one day. You know, for me it was Thurgood Marshall was one of my heroes. Charles Edmund Houston. Thurgood Marshall, my own oldest brother, my heroes, right? Doug Wilder in politics. You know, you're studying, you're burning midnight oil. You, you, you know, you're, you're not going out with your friends, you know, and getting into nefarious <laughs> yeah, stuff, right? You know? And doctor, you know, you know, and you see you yeah. avoid all this stuff. You, you, you unlike me are perfect. And so you, you don't have these issues. <laughs> I had choices to make growing up. And so, right. You know, and, and so you see I was always too. a nerd. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I was a nerd. I don't, I don't know if that means I was smart, but uh <laughs> And so, but, you know, you avoid these things. And literally I've seen my friends be killed. I've seen mm -hmm. friends dead in the street in my neighborhood. I've seen friends go to prison. I've seen we lose families to drugs. And so to have escaped all of that uh, from Washington, D.C., inner city, um, you know, murder capital of the country, right? Seeing just the most horrific things you could see outside your front door every single day. And then to finally have gotten to this place after years of sacrifice, not just by me, but by generations of people. And for them to say that, it can all be destroyed in this moment. 220 years of the Fairfax family name with a press release. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Fairfax, for joining us today. And I really do look forward to the truth being publicized just as much and just as thoroughly as the lies were. Thank you, doctor. It's been an honor. And thank you for your integrity. Uh, thank you to all the listeners. And what I hope the takeaway is from this, at least from my perspective, is let's all heal um, let's please stop trying to destroy each other. It just is not, um, not only an unhealthy thing, but it's, it's, it's harmful to our nation, to our democracy. Um, and I think we got to rise to the better angels of our nature, um, in this moment. And we're in the first year, uh, you know, roughly of the next 400 years of America. Um, and so we can do better, uh, together collectively. And I think we'll get there. I have faith in God. I believe in Genesis 50, 20, um, and God is good all the time. So let's, let's mm -hmm. get there together.
Yes. Well, thank you. And thank you for everyone for listening. And that ends our time for today. But please remember to continue this conversation using science and love. And if you want-